Father, uh, as we come to these very heavy topics of guilt and shame and repentance and regret today, Lord, I pray that we can wait and hope in you. God, I know that some people came in the doors today and they are drowning in shame. And some of them, they have not yet listened to you or stood in your presence and they don't know, Lord, that they're guilty. God, I pray that we will stand before you and that with you we will find forgiveness and we will worship you and we will wait on you and we will find full redemption in you. Amen. So we see through throughout the scriptures this interesting fact that people who walk with God, who walk closely with God, People with whom God, through whom God works powerfully, they seem to have this freedom to say whatever they want in God's presence. In fact, when they speak to God, they speak to Him as if there's no filter between them. So, so we take, for example, David, who is a man after God's own heart. And then we read his psalms, and his psalms are accusing God and screaming at God, you've abandoned me, what have you done to me? And God says, he's a man after my own heart. And then we read the book of Job. And throughout the book of Job, you see this this figure who, who stands before God and says, God, you're a criminal. Look at what you've done to me and I don't deserve it. You're a criminal. And at the end, God says, Job is a righteous man. This kind of raw, sometimes embarrassing sometimes shocking honesty is not only okay with God, it seems to be a prerequisite for Him. Like, if you don't have that type of honesty with yourself and with God, then you cannot experience real healing and real forgiveness and real reconciliation and real mission in life. So God has given us 150 songs and poems, and hymns, and prayers that we call the Psalms to lead us to this great point of honesty with God and with ourselves. Within these Psalms, there are these major themes and categories, and each week through this series, we're going to address those different categories. Within those, there's seven what are called penitential psalms, which are psalms that are all about, like if you if you pull out your iTunes, this would be a whole genre, a whole class of songs or poems or prayers would be about regret and guilt and shame and remorse. Because according to the Bible, there are whole categories, genres of our life that are about guilt and shame and regret and remorse. Uh, before we listen to this great ancient artist cry out and sing to us and draw us in to his cries to God of guilt and shame, I thought it would be helpful if our starting point was to listen to where we're at, a great American artist who also expresses great guilt and shame. So I present to you Mr. Johnny Cash.
I hurt myself today. I would find a way. What do we do when we ask questions like, what have I become? Not what have I done, but what have I become? What do we do with feelings of guilt and shame? What do we do with all those things that we've done that we can never take back and those words that we've said that are just out there? What do we do when our dreams and hopes dry up and die? What do we do when we realize that we can never, ever, ever live up to our father's expectations? What do we do when we realize that the things that we've done to our children will hurt them forever? What do we do when we've destroyed relationships? What do we do when we realize that I've become someone that I do not respect and do not like? What do we do when we're overwhelmed with shame and guilt? Psalm 130 is our text for today. I bet you didn't expect Johnny Cash this morning when you're getting ready for church. Psalm 130, starting in verse 1. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. And this is one line, but this is one line that is pregnant with meaning and experience. And if you've ever been there, you, you don't need anything else. And there's that one word, the depths, out of the depths I cry to you. This is shorthand in the scriptures, for out of the depths of the sea. So have you ever been swimming and um, you, you're swimming in the beach, you jump in and you think, oh, this will be fun. And then suddenly the wave flips you over and then it drags you under. And right as you try and swim up again to gasp for another breath of air, the uh, the wave comes over you again. That's what he's talking about here. Psalm 42, verse 7 puts it this way. Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. We've sung that verse before. But have you ever thought about that verse? It's you're screaming at the top of your lungs, but no one can hear because the roar of the waterfall. And, And you're gasping for air, but every time you come up to breathe, another wave breaks over your head. That's how he feels. He's drowning. And the harder he struggles, the more hopeless he feels. And every time he comes up for air, another wave sweeps over him. And every scream is lost in the waterfall. So he does the only thing he can do. He calls out to the Lord. He's desperate. Oh, Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. God's the only one who could possibly hear. Now, you'll notice here, it uses the word ears, and I just want to debunk something here. Sometimes we think um, of ourselves in elevated terms, and we think, see, they believe that God was a, a very large man in the sky who had ears, and that, that's nonsense. If you read the rest of Psalm, the, the word that he uses here, O Lord, is, is, the, is the personal name of God that was revealed in Exodus chapter 3 at the burning bush. That's the name, I am that I am, or just simply, I am. That I am the God who cannot be boxed into these physical constraints. I'm not materialistic. I'm not just a big man. 
But I'm above and beyond anything you can imagine. I am that I am. This is the same God who gave us, you know, in the Ten Commandments, the Second Commandments, that you can't even make an image of me because nothing in this world can contain me. So there's, he does not believe that God actually has ears, but he does, I want you to notice, speak to God as a person. He doesn't think of God as an impersonal force or some big philosophic idea or some, some, some spirit in the sky type song. He's a person. And he knows that this person cares about him and can actually do something about his situation. So he talks to him the way, the way you and I would talk to a friend or to our father. But this is the Lord and he's above all that we, we know. So, he is like a friend or a father, and you can talk to him in that way. There was an interesting um, article that Doug Balfour sent me two weeks ago, and it showed from a uh, neuroscience point of view the difference between Christian prayer and, say, Hindu or uh, Buddhist or those other types of meditation or, or even an atheist or agnostic who just meditates on spiritual things. And that they can show that when Christians pray, and specifically Christians or Jews pray, that it... it it fires the parts of the brain that are actually the same parts of your brain that would be for a personal conversation with a normal person. But when when a Hindu or a Buddhist prays to God, it doesn't actuate those parts of the brain because they don't think of God. For Christians and Jews, it is a real person that we're calling out to, a person who cares, a person of compassion, a person of love. It's not some big formless idea. But it's also a person who is utterly holy. If you, O oh Lord, the God that I know, the God that I trust, kept a record of sins, O oh Lord, who could stand? If you kept a record of all the sins that I've lived, and all the words that I've said, and all the things I've done, and all the things that I didn't do, that I should have done, I'd be ruined. I'm damned. And this is the hinge of the verse right here, the hinge of the psalm. The, the psalmist is drowning. I want you to picture this. He, he imagines himself in the depths of the sea, swimming for air. He can't gasp. He can't breathe. He can't be heard. And yet he knows that God, in that moment, when he's completely overwhelmed, that God hears him. He's drowning in guilt and shame, sins past and present. Verse 3 here, I want to point out something. The, the word, uh, in some of your translations, it says, Oh Lord, if you marked my iniquities, or marked our iniquities, or kept a record of guilt, is another translation here. That it literally, that word for sins is the word guilt. Today, before we move on, before we can even understand this, we really need to unpack what is a biblical experience of guilt and shame. What is guilt and shame? And how does that, how does not only did God's people affect that, but how does that view us? And from this in the Hebrew here, this word that's translated sins here is usually translated guilt. Like if you go through your scriptures and you see this word, nine out of ten times it's going to be the word guilt. If you kept a record of guilt or iniquity. It's from a root word. I thought this was really helpful in the songs we sang today. It's from the root word, even even what Johnny Cash was saying, that the, the things that he's thinking, the things that are broken in him, um, it's from the root word to be twisted or distorted or bent out of shape. 
that guilt is there's something within us that our soul, if, if you looked inside of our soul, you'd say there's something bent, there's something twisted and distorted. So this could literally, one translation, if Paul, if I ever come out with Paul's translation of the Bible, it'll be this. If you, O oh Lord, kept a record of all that is twisted in us, we'd be damned. Now I want you to notice this ancient biblical way of viewing guilt and, and, and sin. And the psalmist recognizes that when he comes before God, there is an external an objective standard that God is holy above and beyond and He has every right to judge Him in His sins, that there's something wrong with Him. So when He stands before a holy God, this this guy, He says, there's something absolutely wrong with me. I deserve to be destroyed. And it, it, it turns something in. It, it's an external standard that then becomes internal and subjective. I want you to pay attention to these words. There's an external standard. There is a standard of holiness and goodness and truth the way life is supposed to be. And he says, when I look at my God, I realize that something within me is twisted and broken and bent. And we call that feeling guilt. In fact, I would argue, though, that as you look at this, this moves way beyond guilt. If you look at verse 3, his sense of helplessness, I, out of the depths I cry to you that he's drowning. And then you see this, who could stand, meaning that he's completely ruined. This looks like a bigger picture than what we would usually call guilt. We would actually call this shame. Feelings of guilt and shame are quite similar. In fact, they're they're really organically connected. So, so if I say bad sushi, then you say profuse vomiting. If I say uh, if I say chicken pox, you say shingles. If I say poison ivy, you say a, an, an itchy rash. Right? The, the, there are these things that are organically connected. If you have one, it produces the other. They're not the same, but they're they're very, very much tied in. So there's going to be similarities between guilt and shame. And, and before we can unpack how the psalmist deals with this, we have to really understand what he means when he's pouring out his guilt and shame to God. So I want you to think of these two terms, guilt and shame. And I want, I want you to think about how they're similar, first of all. Both guilt and shame are fairly complex emotional responses. They're complex, so sophisticated emotional responses. So I want you to think of this, a, a basic emotional response would be something like fear or anger or even happiness. So to talk about this, um, I have a three-year-old son and I can very easily elicit from him fear or anger or happiness. In fact, I can sit in the dark and then when he comes into a room, I can just jump out and go, boo. And I will scare the pants off that boy. I can. I can cause that externally. It's a very simple, basic, there's nothing sophisticated about that emotional response. On the other hand, guilt and shame aren't like that, are they? There's a level of sophistication and, and, and things that it can't be just purely external factors cannot cause guilt and shame. This is what, what psychologists call self-conscious emotions. Okay, so it, it, these emotions, things like embarrassment, pride, guilt, shame, they have primarily to do with with how you view yourself. They're they're intimately tied to an internal reality. 
So, so let me give you an example. Let's say I literally, my, my, my two, three-year-old son comes in the room and I literally jump out and go, boo! And he's scared, scared the pants off of him and literally scares the pants off of him. And there he is, pantsless, in the middle of the room. Okay, now you and I, we could, we could demonstrate this real quick if you wanted to. If I were to de-pants someone in the middle of this room, you and I have this, this complex emotional and sophisticated reality that comes to our mind. You think, I'm naked in a room full of people, and your cheeks blush, and you become embarrassed, right? But my son, if I pulled his pants down on this table, you know what he'd do? He'd stick out his bottom and go, I got a bottom. Because that's how he responds to that situation. It's not, um, granted, it's not that emotionally sophisticated, but the fact of the matter is he does not have within him something that tells him I should be embarrassed. You have to learn that. You have to have that picture in yourself, inside yourself that says, this is a time when I'm embarrassed. So let's unpack this a little far. Unlike basic emotions like fear, people can't directly cause guilt and shame in you. Did you hear that? People cannot cause directly guilt and shame in you. I'm not saying that they don't influence that, but ultimately the, the direct cause of guilt and shame has is tied to your view of yourself. I like to think of it this way. Guilt and shame are a picture. It's a picture that you have of yourself, that you look at yourself. And it's only when you do something that doesn't fit into the picture that you've already made of yourself, that you hold inside of yourself, that then you say, oh, I should feel guilty. Oh, I should feel ashamed. My son has not yet developed a, developed, fully developed his picture, right? So every one of us has this internal picture of who we are. And when our lives don't match up with that picture of who we think we really are and should be, we call that guilt and shame. So these are these are very, very similar emotions. They're on the same scale, right? Bad sushi, profuse vomiting. Same scale. Causes and effects. But there are some there are some important differences here when we think about guilt and shame. So I wanted to break this book out to you. This is called Psychology in the Bible. And if you're if you're ever interested in learning some new psychological insights, this book is brilliant. If you're actually looking to understand the Bible, I would suggest that you only use this book in case you run out of toilet paper. Um, This book is awful as far as that goes, but it has brilliant, brilliant insights into psychology. There's a section here, there's a quote that I want to read you. It's Ilona Rashkov has an article in here, and she has this summary of the differences between guilt and shame. And she she puts it this way. Now, follow along with this. This is going to be crucial to how we understand how we deal with guilt and shame. She says, guilt relates to internalized societal and parental prohibitions. Don't do that. Whose transgression creates feelings of wrongdoing and the fear of punishment. So, your mom has always told you, don't have a potty mouth. Don't you talk like that. Don't cuss. Right? You grew up that way. She raised you that way. Don't do that. But then you grow up, you're a big boy now, and in your workplace, it's just the way people talk. It's just how business gets done. And so one day, you know, your mom comes over to your house, you pick up the phone to answer it. It's a business call, one of your coworkers, and without even thinking about it, just this, this stream of, of curse words come out. And what happens? 
Then you realize my mom's in the room. Your mom stiffens up and looks at you with that look of like, I raised you better than that. And what do you feel? You broke the parental prohibition and you feel guilty. To put this in the the biblical context, God has household rules. It's called law or the Hebrew word is Torah. And it's a lot bigger than just prohibition. So this is the way you live in God's household. This is the way your life is supposed to be. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery, right? All these prohibitions and then the positive things of loving your neighbor as yourself and loving the Lord your God before everything. These are the commands of God, the way to do life in his household. And when you break that and you realize that, you're caught breaking part of God's rules, your father's prohibition, You feel guilty. And you should, you dog. Shame. Slightly different, though. Important difference. Shame, on the other hand, relates to anxiety caused by inadequacy or failure to live up to internalized societal and parental goals and ideals. Don't get caught up in the big language here. This this is a huge difference. This is as opposed to internalized prohibitions. This is expectations of what a person should be and do and know and feel. This is aspirational. Shame is when you don't become who you should become, who your family told you you should become, who everyone expects you to become, who you think you should be, when you don't live up to that. So, So guilt is when you break a prohibition, but shame is much, much worse. So, everyone in your family is successful, right? Your mom was the perfect stay-at-home mom, and while she stayed at home on the side, she built a a multi-million dollar small business. Your dad, you know, he made more money than he knew what to do with. All your other brothers and sisters, they all had perfect kids who all get scholarships, and everyone's driving like a hybrid SUV and straight A's and all that. And then there's you. And everyone's like, what's wrong with you? Like, your job is pitiful, your kids, your house, you drive a Kia. (laughs) And everyone's like, what is wrong with you? You did not live up to the parental standards that were set. And what do you feel? You feel shame that you are not who you're supposed to be. What have I become? Let's put it this way. Guilt is specific. I failed. But shame is global. I'm a failure. Guilt says I broke a standard. But shame says I am broken. Guilt says I messed up. Shame says I am messed up. Do you see the difference? While the scriptures do not give us a technical definition of shame, here's what it feels like. Psalm 38. Oh, Lord, don't rebuke me in your anger, your discipline. For your arrows have pierced me. Your hand has come down on me because of your wrath. There's no health in my body. My body has no soundness because of my sin. My guilt has overwhelmed me like a burden too heavy to bear. Psalm 102, for my days vanish like smoke. My bones burn like glowing embers. My heart is blighted and wither like like grass because of my loud groaning i'm reduced to skin and bones for i eat ashes as my food and mingle my drink with my tears do you see the picture here he's crying so hard that every drink he takes out of his drink 
tears are falling into it. Shame. So the question is, is what do I do with my feelings of guilt and shame? Last week I introduced you, there's three major ways that we deal with all of our emotions. This was from Tim Keller's work. And, and he says there's a secular way, there's what he calls the, the way of religiosity, and then there's the gospel way, the way that the Psalms introduced to us. So I want to go through these real quick. Guilt and shame. The first way that you can deal with guilt and shame is the way the world does it, the secular way. And it says simply this. Guilt and shame are, right? They're controlled by how we view ourselves. That's true. It's that picture that you've accepted of yourself inside of you. So they say, the problem is, is that you've been reading the Bible too much. You know, the Bible, what's it full of? Thou shalt not, don't do this, don't sleep with who you want to, don't live there, don't keep all your money for yourself, don't cuss, don't do this, don't do that. It's If you read the Bible, you're going to feel guilty. Stop it. So if you throw out, if you take away the standard of holiness and righteousness, you take away the scriptures, then you don't have to feel guilty anymore, and this can remove your guilt and shame. So that's the secular way of dealing with this. And this is a great answer. It really is. I mean, wouldn't it be so much easier if we just had to say everyone decides what's right and wrong for themselves? That's a great answer if it actually worked. So does it work, though? What if I say, okay, now I'm only going to feel guilt and shame if I believe that it's good or bad for me? And the answer is with guilt, you know, it actually does work. I, I don't know if I'm supposed to say that in church, but if you throw out the scriptures and you no longer hold to God's holiness and the standards that he's calling you to live by, it, it does work. And in fact, we have a whole world of people who are pretty sure that they're not guilty of anything. If you ask people on the street, are you a good person? I'm a good person. They're absolutely innocent. It doesn't matter if they've broken every moral standard that's been accepted in humanity since the beginning of time. It doesn't matter. In their mind, they're innocent. So it does remove the feeling of guilt. But does it get rid of shame? Does it get rid of that lingering sense of failure that I'm not who I should be, that something within me is twisted and broken and not straight? I don't think it does. In fact, I think our world is full of people who don't feel guilty about anything. They sincerely believe that they're perfectly innocent, and yet they're haunted by the fact that their life is not what it should be. They're drowning in fear of failure, but they don't even know what success would look like if they found it. They have that sense that their life is twisted and bent and broken, and yet they have no idea of what a life along the narrow way, what life should look like. They have that sense of failure, but they don't know what success is. If you take away all the guilt-causing prohibitions of the Bible, you just throw them out, then you're also throwing out all the goals and ideals for which you were created. Do you get it? If you take away the guilt, you are also taking away the objective answer to the question, who am I and who should I be? 
So the first answer is, what do I do with my feelings of guilt and shame? And it's throw out the Bible. But that, it just pragmatically, that answer doesn't work at the end of the day. The next answer is the way of religiosity. And, and that answer is clear. It's try to please God with personal sacrifices. We say, I know I shouldn't be doing this and I know this is wrong in my life, but God, look at all this good stuff I'm doing. I'm leading a small group and I'm going to go serve the homeless at Chosen 300 and I'm going to go to church on Sunday. Doesn't that balance it out? He says, I, I know I shouldn't have this in my life. I know this is wrong, but you know what? I can feel okay about it if I give enough money, if I do enough good stuff, if I'm nice to this person. The problem with this is that whether it be literal animal, animal sacrifices of the Old Testament or you and me making up our own sacrifices to try and please God, the end of the day, God's word says that God is not pleased with that. It does not take away our guilt. So King David, if ever there was a sinner, it was him. He was caught in adultery, murder, lies, Everything you can imagine. And in that moment when he's finally caught and finally convicted and finally comes to repentance before God, Psalm 51, what does he say? God, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. Like, I wish you did. I wish I could just pay you off. I wish I could make this up. I wish I could give you enough stuff to overcome all the wrong that I've done. But you don't desire that. I can never pay you back. I can never make it right on my own. The author of Hebrews puts it this way in chapter 10. He says, if sacrifices really did work, would they not have stopped being offered? Why do you think people keep offering sacrifices year after year? If it really did work, really did remove the guilt and the shame from our lives, why would you do that? He literally says this, For the worshippers would, would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats. It's impossible for going to enough small groups. It's impossible to feed enough homeless people. It's impossible to read your Bible enough or give away enough money. It's impossible to go to enough church services. To remove your sin. It's impossible. So what do I do with my feelings of guilt and shame? The psalmist gives us a different answer. He doesn't run away from God. He doesn't throw out the Bible. And, and he doesn't try and make it up. Try and fix it on his own. Instead, we go back to verse 3. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, who could stand before you? He comes before God. And he says, my guilt and my shame are obvious to me. I am guilty. I feel ashamed. And I know that I could never appease you, never meet your standard. But he also knows something else. With you, there is forgiveness. I know that you're forgiving. I know how sinful I am. I know that if we came up here right now and started unpacking the guilt and shame and the things that we regret just in this room, that it would be shocking. That if we knew the truth about what's in our hearts and what we've done and the things that we've done, we might not even be able to be friends anymore. 
And he says, it's completely hopeless. It's not something we can fix for one another. It's not something I can fix. But he runs to God. Because why? Because God is the only one who can forgive him. With you there is forgiveness. Therefore you are feared. This used to seem odd to me. You have forgiveness, therefore you're feared, it seems. But it perfectly, perfectly fits together. I mean, if God, if, if you, O oh Lord, kept a record of sins, oh God, who could stand before you? If, if you all came to that conclusion that God deserved, you deserved to be destroyed by God, and there was no forgiveness with God, how would you feel about God? Would you want to run to Him? We're, we're Americans. We don't just bow to that stuff. We would probably hate God. But when you realize that the very one who can destroy you is the only one who can save you, then you tremble before him. The word fear here is the same word that can be translated worship in other passages. That there's a reverence. I know that you are forgiving. I know that you're the only person in the universe who can remove my guilt and shame. That you can give me a different picture of myself. Therefore you are feared. I'm in awe of you. I am humbled that the one who has every right to destroy me has become my savior. But I want you to notice this is not a quick fix. He's come to the realization that God alone can give him forgiveness, but that doesn't solve everything. What's the next verse? So what's he do? I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I put my hope, my hope, my soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman wait for the morning, more than the watchman wait for the morning. That, that great, you've come to this conclusion that God alone can forgive you. He can actually remove that guilt and shame, but, but now he just has to wait. He has to wait for what feels like eternity. The psalmist has poured out all of his guilt and his shame to God, and he realized that he is helpless. He has seen that God alone can heal him and save him, and now he waits. But while he's waiting, he has something to say to us. O oh, Israel, and this was the message for everyone else. If you're a follower of God, if you're a child of the King, put your hope in the Lord. For the Lord, with the Lord is unfailing love and with Him is full redemption. If you want to come to that place of real healing and real forgiveness and real reconciliation and real purpose in life, it can only be found through Him. And how? He himself will redeem Israel. He himself will redeem us from all our sins. So when this psalmist is overwhelmed with guilt and shame and he's waiting and he's waiting and he's waiting for it to be over, his only hope is that God himself can save him. So you and I, when we are overwhelmed with guilt and shame and we are waiting and we are waiting and we are waiting for this to pass, our only hope is that God himself did fully redeem us in Jesus Christ. On the cross, Jesus redeemed us. 
He himself was the only sacrifice that could cleanse our conscience, that he set us free from guilt and shame, that he could give us a new identity, a new picture of ourselves, that he purchased the guilty, shameful me. And he said, that me died. And he's given me a new life, his own life. This is a song. This is a song that's not just meant to be read and studied, though I'm glad we're doing that. But it's a song that's meant to be felt. Uh, I want to close today, not with more words trying to explain this, but with um, a picture of, of what I think this looks like. Sin does not define us. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. If you are uh, struggling under guilt and shame, that past things are still defining who you are, and I just want to encourage you today that we... I know we're going to have a meeting right after this and we have screaming kids, but um, that don't rush out of here. If you need prayer, Doug and Anna are going to be at the cross right afterwards. So I encourage you to um, to take time. And uh, and for the rest of you, yeah, I would encourage you to stick around. We're going to start up in, a, in about five minutes. We'll, we'll jump right into the meeting, and it'll be fairly quick. So thanks for coming. Go in peace.